The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Is the Tory party imploding? It's dangerous. And you know what? Even Jeremy Corbyn didn't suggest that we should go that far. Very well, briefly. too many chancellors have had too many fiscal rules that they then had to ditch because they haven't been able to meet them. Well, we know that Rishi didn't see eye to eye with Boris, but it seems he's also had difficulty with the other contenders for the top job as well. But I think people listening at home will be looking at us de- debating these issues. And, and it seems that we're removed from the real problems that they are facing. They need some immediate action now. Um, I don't understand why uh, Rishi doesn't accept that. Rishi thinks splashing cash won't be good for controlling inflation. Because inflation is the enemy that makes everybody poorer. It erodes savings, reduces living standards and raises mortgage rates. It can also devalue your debt as well, of course, but that is just a small benefit against a rather large problem of an inflation rate, which is now at 9.4%. But most of the other contenders in the process so far seem like they were less concerned about inflation. They just wanted to see taxes come down. I've already said out plans to cut tax, which is why I didn't vote for the national insurance rise. And I've already set out plans to cut the fuel duty. The essential thing for all of us now is to set out an agenda that will see us able to deliver a growing economy. But the disagreements on the ITV debate on Sunday night became very heated. It's hard to imagine they were in the same political party. There was this. The fact is that raising taxes at this moment will choke off economic growth in order to prevent us getting the revenue we need to pay off the debt. And this. And you know what? This something-for-nothing economics isn't conservative, Uh, it's uh, socialism. Under your plans, we are predicted to have a recession because you have raised tax... It is cutting back on growth. And it just didn't get any better as Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, the last two left standing now, were fighting it out on national television. And I do have a plan for growth and it involves three things, investment, innovation and education. And if we can get all of that right, that's how we drive it. If Rishi has got this great plan for growth... Why haven't we seen it in his last two and a half years at the Treasury? It is a Tory party divided on tax. Do we roll back some of the recent tax hikes so there's more money in people's pockets, which is what Liz Truss wants to do? Or are we worried that increasing spending will only add to inflation, which is Rishi's point of view? Interesting times when the Tory party isn't united on cutting tax. But which is the right thing to do right now? We'll look at all of that this week on The Y Curve. The Y Curve. So, tax. I mean, nobody likes it, obviously. Um, we all pay it. Well, let's assume everybody does, including members of the government. But I suppose the point is... And their wives. And their wives. Well, yes, quite. <laughs> um, let's not even go there. But the point, I suppose, in all this is Tories, traditionally, low tax. That's yeah. been their thing. Yeah. And yet, and yet, and yet... He's Rishi doing the opposite. Well, exactly. And yeah. it's not just Rishi. Actually, I was looking back over the stats. Margaret Thatcher, at the end of her time in power... Mm. It was a f- much higher take tax take proportionally yeah. to GDP than it was at the beginning. Well, it is this slavish adherence, isn't it, to this idea that, well, we need to pay for, you know, the government spending. You know, it's fiscal conservatism, which is the expression they like to use. And if we can't balance the books, and we are a long, long, long way away from balancing the books, uh, then we need to do something about it. The question, I think, the question is timing. Mm. You know, is this because we are going through very difficult times, the cost of living crisis, is this the right time? Even if it was the, the thing you needed to do, is it the thing you, you do right now? 
Well, let me put on a conservative hat. It doesn't fit me very well, but I'll put it on anyway and say, okay, unless people have more of their own money to spend and invest, they will not uh, grow the economy. They will not put the money into building factories, into setting up businesses, into doing all that kind of thing. Outsiders will not come to invest in this country if they think they're going to lose a lot of their money Mm. in tax. And those kind of things generate national income, which is what we need to actually keep us going in the first place. Right, but as I said, it's all a question of timing. This might be a big surprise to you when you're just about to go through a major economic downturn. There's not a lot of investment going on anyway. So really, you've got to bunker down, get through the period and look after the people who are struggling the most. So you come out the other side. Then you can say, OK, now we've been through the worst of it. How do we how do we look at growth? Yeah, but you look at timing. But people said that during during the COVID, of course. And even before that, you know, we had a period of austerity. We've had lots of things. Moments mm. of business. Well, it's not quite right now. Let's, let, let's tax. Yes. Not now. Later when we can afford it. We never can. We never feel that we can. That's almost mm. inevitable. Right. And then the, the big question as well. And, you know, there's so much to talk about on the program today. And, we've, you know, as always, we've, we're bringing in someone from outside because very quickly we run out of the, the extent of our own expertise. <laughs> but well, I, mean, I, I do. You, you're more on this than I am. <laughs> but I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the big concern is, uh, you know, is, is that balancing of the budget and how important is it? And that, that's a big question because you look at lots of economies like the United mm. States has hardly mm. ever actually had a budget surplus. You know, and there are people like the modern monetary theorists who argue that if you uh, if you have a, a budget surplus, you're actually mm. pulling money out of the economy. It's actually the worst thing you could possibly do. Yes, you're actually re- reducing the money Neo-Keynesianism, supply. Neo-Keynesianism, I think, is probably the way. Uh, no, no. Anyway, let, we we know only a certain amount of this. Someone who knows an awful lot more is our guest today, Simon French, chief economist at Panmure Gordon, and he joins us now. All right, so Simon, uh, clearly Rishi Sunak has got it in his mind that he wants to uh, try and claw back some of that you know massive government debt that we've incurred over the last couple of years and try and get the budget back into. To, to at least balance or, you know, hopefully at, at, start, at some point start paying back. But, you know, the question mark, it's all in timing, isn't it? That might be the right thing to do, perhaps. But do you do it when it looks like the uh, the country is either in or quickly heading towards a, a recession? Isn't this the time to be spending rather than cutting back? Well, I think it's exactly the right question. I wish all questions at the moment were as eloquently put as that. We always it's start well the... and go downhill, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um But it is, there are some very respectable arguments, I believe, that you want to be fiscally activist, to use the jargon, so expanding the UK budget deficit at this time because you feel the economy is heading into a very, very difficult few quarters. If you think there is a hard economic landing uh, looming, then you might want to get ahead of that by big fiscal expansion to support both the household and the corporate sector. I personally um, don't foresee that. I think there's already been about £37 billion worth of uh, direct payments promised to households. And I do think that the relative strength of the labour market, the relative strength of household balance sheets going into this period, means that this sort of fiscal fine-tuning, which has been Uh, has got a fairly checkered macroeconomic history, is not to be recommended at this time. But there are some, and final thing I would say, there are some very respected economists, ones that I respect, who see things very differently and are calling for um, more, if you like, uh, economic cycle managing sort of tax cuts. Right. I mean, let's pick up on that idea of tax cuts, because obviously this has been the big thing in the, the Tory leadership debate, the thing they've been focusing on. Tories are a low tax party and all the rest. But at the basic root of this, uh, uh, in a way, looking away from current circumstances, Simon, 
does low does tax do tax cuts actually help an economy? And I know this is an enormous area we could talk about mm. Ricardian convergence and Laffer curves <laughs> and God knows what. But does it actually work? I mean, what's the history of this? Uh, it does. One of the problems with asking answering the question, Roger, is that the evidence is relatively mixed, and a lot of the evidence that is presented is by people who academics who have an ideological either aversion to uh, a smaller state or indeed a larger state, and, and tax being the flip side of that. Um, I, I would say that what the tax environment uh, tells you about an economy is only partly what encourages growth. Um, a consistent, if you like, uh, set of supply-side features, be it labour market regulation, product market regulation, consistent trading relationships and legal relationships with your nearest trading partners, for example. Those are the type of things that generate sustainable growth over the long term and where the empirical evidence is much stronger. I think, in, think changing the marginal rate of tax uh, to try and promote a longer-term uh, faster economic growth rate um, does not have a huge amount of merits. Is this the time for long-term thinking, though? Because, you know, we are going through a recession, more than likely. Uh, we, we certainly know that there's a cost-of-living crisis uh, where people uh, at the bottom end are seeing their wages uh, increase very little while the cost of living is shooting up and they, you know, need more money. And, of course, they are the people, if they had more money, would spend it straight away. So the velocity of money, the money, the speed at which money is circulating around the economy would be that much faster if money found its way into their hands. Mm. So there is a redistribution exercise, and it doesn't need to be a long-term redistribution exercise. And I wonder whether that is part of the, the difference between Rishi and the other contenders this week, that Rishi seems to be slavishly ad uh, adhering to this idea that they've got to get the budget back into surplus. Um mm. Everyone else is saying, "Well, hang on a second. You know, there's something going on here that we've got to get over this hump. We're not out of the uh, out of the the dark days yet. We need to 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 help people get through it." And that's a that is a different philosophy, isn't it? It is a different philosophy. Although I would, and I'm no um, champion specifically of any candidate, and, and mm. uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, view is that having provided. Uh, £37 billion, pounds, as I mentioned previously, of direct support for households so far in his February and May support packages. There is a degree of, if you like, risk sharing going on now between the state and the individual to deal with an exogenous shock that I think he's being very honest by saying that no government can fully insulate, nor should indeed fully insulate, the entire household sector from the impact of a what is a 6x increase in the wholesale gas price in the UK that's going to pass through to a trebling of um, dual fuel bills. And the reality is that some of the tax proposals being put forward by other candidates um, would actually, rather than being very targeted, and I think your question is well made in terms of the targeting of support, um, if you reversed, for example, the national insurance increase, mm. that would actually be uh, the biggest benefits would be given to uh, the the richest cohorts in the UK, who we already yep. know have the largest amount of savings, the largest amount of assets to draw down and to be able to, if you like, consumption smooth 
through this period. So I'm not entirely sure that some of the other tax proposals have the degree of targeting that you are alluding to. Well, I'm, I'm surprised no one has pointed to what seems like the obvious uh, solution. And it's because this is a short term problem we've got. You know, we, we don't mm. want to uh, uh, we don't need to look for a long term solution in tax right now. We just need to look at how we get over the next year or perhaps two years. Uh, and uh, and to, for those people who's uh, who are consuming the most uh, as a proportion of their of their income, how do we make mm. life easier for them? Isn't it obvious that you just uh, you just drop VAT for a while, maybe halve it for a year? But the biggest benefits of a reduction in VAT would be the richest in society who consume a much larger. Uh, proportion through discretionary items that are full full 20% VAT. Now, VAT is a very effective tax cut. It was uh, done after the global financial crisis in the UK by Alistair, the then-Chancellor Alistair Darling. It did have a success of stimulating demand. But this isn't, a, at the moment, a, in my judgment, and it is just my judgment, a demand-efficient economy that requires middle and higher-income cohorts to spend more. If I were to go for an optimal change in the, the tax uh, rate at the moment, I would actually reduce further the taper rate on universal credit, which is in, in effect uh, putting more a more targeted amount of support to the lowest income cohorts, but also potentially reintroduce the £25 a week universal credit, which was introduced during the pandemic. But I have to say this, yeah, I have to say there's some institutional reluctance to do some, you know, short-term proposals that it's politically very hard to then but th- uh, but make this the is, argument they're unwound. But this is kind of, tink- I mean, forgive me, this is kind of tinkering with, no. it, it's twiddling the dials in a way, mm. at a point where, as you said, it's an exogenous shock we've got. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know, for example, whether Putin is going to keep the, the gas uh, pipes closed to, to Western Europe. We don't know what's going to happen in China, how long the, the, the shutdowns there are going to continue. Is it really worth making these kind of changes at this stage, given how much we don't well, we know? Want to, and can I partially answer that? And you can tell me mm. whether I'm wrong or not, Simon. But we do want to cut back demand. Now, that was the point I was going to make from, from your last observation, that uh, you know it's the top end of society. We want to cut their consumption down. Yeah, because the we? demand from the bottom end, we do want to keep going. Well, I mean, they, they have to live, don't they? Well, exactly. They've got to eat. But it's the mm-hmm. top end. We don't want people buying yachts or uh, you know expensive items that are going to uh, just keep on pushing inflation higher. We want it's, we wanted, we wanted to see demand destruction, but not in a way that is going to harm the entire population. Surely that's how we get through this. Yes, albeit that there is already some evidence of top-end demand destruction because being exposed to financial assets disproportionately, financial markets have sold off quite aggressively, as you're well, both well aware, since the start of the year. And that is starting to have a negative wealth effect, albeit more obviously amongst US consumers, it has to be said, than the UK consumer. Um, and actually, um, US uh, has been a big part of that um, exceptional demand for consumer durables that took place during the pandemic and has so stressed supply chains and has helped contribute to this big inflationary surge, which is which is global. Back to Roger's question on, you know, should we be trying to micromanage what, you, what the economy when there's such radical uncertainty out there? I think that's a very valid question. I think the problem is, if you like, the scale of this shock has, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, uh, a movement. I'm not a 
massive fan of quoting price movements and standard deviations, but I will just give you one, which is it was a 16 standard deviation movement in the European gas price um, as on the onset of the war in, the Ukra- in Ukraine. And that is an extraordinarily difficult thing for households and businesses to try and absorb. So the state does have to step in, but the scale of how much it steps in or how much it doesn't step in is a, is ultimately and always is a political more than an economic judgment. Yeah, but I mean, it, 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 it was crazy, wasn't it, when we started paying out money to people who were struggling and we gave them a, uh, some, some benefits to cover their energy bill. Uh, based on income, but then everyone, every household got £400 as well. So Rishi's household got £400. I mean, that that just seems like a waste of government money. And this was a, the criticism that I levelled at the package that was unveiled in February. I thought, um, if you like, stung by that criticism, the May package, because this came in two lots in the UK, uh, the May package was more targeted. It, it did acknowledge that, if you like, the uh, the, the targeting was insufficient in February, given how damaging. And those choices, let's be very clear, because sometimes we make it quite impersonal. Economists particularly make these events quite impersonal. This is a choice for a lot of perhaps the bottom 20% of uh, UK families going into this winter. This will be a choice between heating and eating. Now, that's a bit of a journalistic soundbite, but it perhaps makes it real the kind of choices that are going to be made without very targeted support at the bottom end of the income distribution. Right. And all of that targeting makes sense. The reason why I, I, I talked about VAT, and you're right, it, 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 obviously it, it, it benefits everybody and those people who are spending more actually are saving, saving the most from it. Mm. But it was just this question of pinpointing those people who are in most need. I mean, we, you know, well, you in can, fiscal terms, what could you do to pinpoint them? Yeah. How, how do you reach them? How do you say, well, we know exactly who the, top, the bottom 20% are? Well, there's there's two sets of groups. There's the low earners where where they interact, where their earnings interact with the universal credit system, reducing the taper rate. So the, the scale at which benefits are withdrawn as their income goes up is a very effective way for that group of getting you know increasing their take home pay, which of course is the most relevant uh, metric. But there are groups for whom uh, they don't have employment income for a variety of reasons, sometimes caring, sometimes uh, long-term sickness. And therefore, there does need to be, I believe, additional support through uh, the benefits system. The problem, as I alluded to, is, is this is becomes intensely political to provide that support temporarily and take it away. This £25 universal credit is, is totemic amongst Conservative ministers. Well, yeah, it became yeah. a huge, huge issue, didn't it? And, and, and really almost out of proportion. You can understand why it is important, because it is that the, the, the lifeline for the mm. poorest. But nonetheless, once you get all the politics laid on it, I mean, is there a real... Do you think that actually is something that would provide concrete long-term benefit for people? Yes, because I think when you look at the uh, lifetime uh, outcomes of people who have experienced very real poverty conditions in youth, their education outcomes are worse. There is a long-term productivity legacy of periods of time which children through either malnutrition or not being able to experience the various opportunities that you know they need to in a holistic sense when they're they're learning that that long-term impact um, which will be very much uh, felt this winter based on the projections I and others have for the impact on 
um, low-income family spending power. Yes, I do think there is a strong fiscal, economic, and indeed social case and for intervention. The answer about, you know, how do you stop it? The answer is clearly that you don't, do you? If, if you if you feel as though you're spending, you know, that is too much money, you don't want to keep spending it, it, it can still be there. You can just, you've got so many instruments that you can move. You can move uh, tax thresholds, for example, or you can change other yeah, elements yeah, but of it, it welfare. It all comes out of one pot. I mean, let me put my ill-fitting Tory head on at the moment and say, magic money tree, fiscal headroom, I, I've heard that no, a even, lot. Even if you went down that way, though, and said, well, well you know, there is no magic money tree and uh, we need to make sure we're just spending the same amount of money. Hmm. How you cut that up? I mean, it, it, yeah, it, yeah, but, but, but all we're so talking about, to move. I mean, the £25 sounds like nothing at all, but in terms of the actual amount of money it costs the Treasury, it costs the taxpayer. That's £6 billion. Pounds. Yeah, which, which is substantial. So don't move tax thresholds up for a few years. Just allow uh, inflation creep to, uh, you know, to, to claw money back that way. Which already is happening. Yeah. This fiscal drag by freezing the income tax thresholds for three years is now going to be far, far more significant because of the pickup in inflation. Um, I think just the point that really, really frustrates me is this idea, this, if you like, artificial concept of headroom. Um, headroom is something that... Um, uh, falls out of the various fiscal rules. And this isn't a political comment on Rishi Sunak or Deem Zahari or Sajid Javid or Philip Hammond. It's all chancellors of the last 20, 30 years have introduced these fiscal rules and then uh, approached you know, that, if you like, that headroom as some, somewhat of something of a science. It isn't science. It's at best an art form. The reality is, and I speak from having... Been twelve years in government. As yeah, a, you, you were actually in the treasury, weren't you? Yes, in. a government economist. And what is important is not the quantity of public spending; it is the quality mm. of public spending. And we obsess over quantity when, in fact, there are very, very strong and respectable, indeed progressive, um, economic arguments for running persistent deficits if those deficits are used to increase your long-term you know trend um, economic growth performance because there'll be modern monetary theorists jumping up and down in excitement as you say this because yeah, of course but, that, that, that is what they're saying if you if you are, if you're continually running a, a a deficit you're actually expanding the money supply and that's helping the economy yeah, but, but let, let me inject a little bit of more old-fashioned yeah. the, the, the old-fashioned monetary theory in that sense of saying you talk about some deficits being sustainable in that way but is there no traction in the idea that's of sound money i mean let's let's bring that term back the idea that actually a massive deficit is a problem for a country are you just saying that isn't really the case but i am preaching sound money i'm preaching the kind of sound money that any respectable cfo that you got on this podcast would talk about which is the quality of spending have they found investment opportunities with a hurdle rate over and above their cost of capital and bear in mind even with the turbulence in the bond market the cost of capital for governments around the world still in real terms and even in nominal terms is still very low if we can identify good projects be they in education, social support, capital infrastructure, intangible investment, then why should a public sector with the ability to borrow in its own currency not do those deficits? The problem, if you like, with modern monetary theory, it's been adopted by... um, uh, a cult, if you like, yeah. a cult of people. Yeah, most notably Sri Lanka. Just saying. I mean, that's a country yeah. that's falling yes. on its flat feet, and MMT was very much part well, of that. Well, like everything, it's by degrees, though, isn't it? Mm. It's the extent to which you drive it. 
And, 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 and if it therefore goes hand in hand with, if you like, avoiding the difficult um, economic decisions on what to uh, fund and what not to fund, then modern monetary theory falls flat on its face. The problem is modern monetary theory is, uh, I think, has merit if it goes hand in hand with um, good quality financial decision making. The yeah. problem is it's associated with bad yeah, um, it's, it's, it's seen uh, as a, it's seen as a you know, no end of free money rather than well, yeah. How can we get a return on this extra money in effect that we are that we're creating for the economy? And that's where I think people tend to lose their focus a little bit, isn't it? But with Grishy Sunak, he seems to be very, and I'd be interested. I've got another question, which I'll say mm. you can answer later about how well you'd get on with with Grishy Sunak if you were still working in the Treasury right now. Uh, but Grishy Sunak does seem to be set on this idea that if we put any more money into the economy. That is just going to make inflation worse. So we've got to, and that means that the that the Bank of England is going to put interest rates up more, which means everybody is going to suffer. Is he is he right with that line of thinking, or does it get back to your point? Well, it depends on how you spend that money. Well, it's it's sound economics that if you run a uh, looser fiscal policy at the margin, monetary policy will need to be tighter. But I always make two points when these issues are raised. First of all, I do mean at the margin. Because what will be generated with some of the tax proposals that are on uh, on offer in terms of additional inflation uh, won't quite get lost in the rounding, but close to get lost in the rounding, given the scale of the exogenous inflationary shock through the energy route and increasingly through the food route. And therefore, I think we need to talk about you know, magnitudes of mm. the inflation. And then secondly, and you talked about this in your question, uh, which is, how you uh, target tax cuts will determine what scale of um, inflationary blowback you will get. So, for example, should you provide uh, a considerable tax cut to the likes of myself, uh, you know, who are decent income, very decent income, and uh, I will spend that additional, v- you know, let's say, a VAT cut on discretionary spending in areas that already have supply constraints on either consumer durables or the hospitality sector. That will just bid up prices and inflation, the blowback will be quite considerable. Whereas if you target that tax cut on those for whom effectively 100% of that goes through to consumer staples and quite price elastic consumer staples, at least domestic demand won't affect their um, their price, then you actually your inflation blowback will be far less... Um, uh, significant. Yeah, well, it's it's well paid. Clearly, very well paid people like you. I didn't realise quite until you brought it up. I didn't realise quite how much money you were earning there, Simon. But I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's enormously wealthy people like yourself. Uh, we don't want you to, you know, use up quite so much energy as well. I mean, that's the you know we want the energy that we have available to go to heating the homes through winter uh, of those people who are struggling to get by. Whereas you could turn off the uh, the air conditioning in the yeah. fourth spare bedroom or, or head to the south of France. You will be pleased. You will be pleased to know, Phil, that. Uh, I have been walking around the house turning the thermostat down <laughs> for many, many years. Um, yes. And I will continue to yeah. do that perhaps even more uh, vigorously this all, winter. All part of, sure. s- of sound economics in, on the domestic front is everything else. Also, all part of being <laughs> from Yorkshire originally, actually. <laughs> well, that helps. Yes. Well, of course, where Rishi Sunak, of course, represents a constituency, which kind of brings us, I think, to the Back point to Phil question. was trying to make. Exactly. Would you get on with I, Are you impressed? Uh, I mean, you've worked uh, with, with chancellors. Um, do you think Rishi's a good one? Would he be good as a prime minister as well? Um, 
I respect his competence. Um, people who I did work with um, are of the view that he is very diligent and very competent and very honest. And if you want diligent, competent and honest as a successor uh, to the current prime minister, then I think that is a improved scorecard. And that's as diplomatic as I can possibly yes, be. I, yeah, I think we, we can all gloss that, gloss that, that and is, say we is, know what is, you're talking is, about. Is that uh, enough? Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I, and has well, he got... Has, well, I mean, he's got a lot of experience, but is it is it the right experience as well? I mean, I guess is he too ideological? Is the question? Uh, I don't think so. I think he is, from what I've heard, he is evidence led, but he will challenge that evidence when it is presented to him by officials within the Treasury or external stakeholders who come and uh, present their analysis. Um, I, you know, I don't have a perfect crystal ball on what he would be like as a, a leader. And certainly some of the challenges are that he hasn't set out a, if you like, a conservative vision of um, a smaller state, a lower tax take. Mm. Um, but I do, if you like, um, somewhat push back against those. And I think they are lazy parallels with the early 1980s and if you like the first two terms of the Thatcher government there were very very different demographics in the UK where the baby boomers were coming into their prime earning years their prime uh, you know tax paying years and that's a very different demographic backdrop today and also the um, revenues from North Sea oil and gas were approaching their peak and you put those two things together and the ability to, if you like, revisit those economic conditions is the economics of uh, fantasy, um, unfortunately, not the economics of reality. And we also weren't as highly leveraged as we are now back yeah. then as yeah. well. And it was pre it was pre the big boom, of course, in the city. And, you know, in terms of confidence of city institutions, then mm. a big part, a very important part, I remember it, I'm that old, was that uh, was the feeling that at least the government had the right ideas about the economy. I mean, again, is you're in the city is is Rishi someone that they would welcome in the top seat? Um, versus the other, as we see, yeah, well, three, three candidates, then I think, yes, absolutely. Um, but you're also right, Roger, your questions are excellent. The, the point being that um, coming off the back of the 1970s, when there were very, very high and prohibitive marginal tax rates, you, you said I couldn't talk about Lafferism, but I will mention uh, the Laffer. <laughs> the Laffer, the Laffer curve. Quickly. Well, the Laffer curve, we should just say for those perhaps are not students yes. of economy, it's the idea that uh, tax cuts uh, basically boost the economy. And it was well, Donald, Donald Trump tried yes. it, didn't yeah. he, most recently, by saying if, if we have yeah. a tax, tax cuts for the wealthy, they will yeah. invest that extra money and that will create the jobs, which yeah. means you'll get more tax at the end of the day. Fam famously that, drawn on a napkin at a, uh, a dinner with, with <laughs> senior Republicans. Any evidence yes. anywhere in the world of that ever working, Simon? Uh, yes, I would say the early 1980s UK, when marginal tax rates in so some cases were so high yeah. that bringing them down did yeah. stop um, you know, what was quite distortionary activity. But that was an extreme. That was an extreme. Uh, correct, off correct. Yeah. You are moving off an extreme. And I think that is the difference this time around is um, although the overall tax burden uh, has moved to levels we ha won't see or haven't seen since the late 1940s. Actually, those marginal tax rates for almost all cohorts are still 
relative, certainly modest compared to what we saw at the back end of the 1970s. And therefore, your ability to, if you like, employ Lafferism is far more constrained in my professional view. Do you know what? I've uh, I've enjoyed talking to you for the last 25 minutes or so, so I don't care if anyone else is listening or not. We've had a good time. No, it's been and, excellent. And we've got so many more questions as well. So we've got to get you back on again, if that's OK with you. I'd be delighted to join you both again. <laughs> Simon, thank you so much for joining us there. Simon French there, Chief Economist at Panmure Gordon, joining us here on The Y Curve. Well, next week on The Y Curve, uh, um, do you know what? We don't know yet. We, we haven't we, got a clue, no, do we? No, I, mean, well, I was Phil, looking Phil for had written on a bit of paper, yeah. but unfortunately on the way in, he dropped it. It's under the table somewhere. When we find it, we'll, we'll tell no, you. No, in truth, we haven't got a clue. But that is the whole idea of the Y curve, that you yeah. know, we are whatever the topic of the week is. So uh, We've hit it pretty well so far, but yeah. it will be exciting. And uh, we will be diving <laughs> into... Yes, it will. We're no. going to try, try yeah. exciting. We'll yeah, see we'll, if it works. We'll dive into one of the key subjects and interrogate it and attempt to answer the Y question. By the way, before we go today, uh, if you go to the website, ycurve.com, uh, there's a little microphone icon on it. You can click on that microphone icon and you can record a message. So if you've got a question or if you'd like to be featured on the Y Or Curve, you'd like to tell us what you think of it all. It, exactly, yeah. We, well, if, you know, if you're brutally honest, we might not play it. But if you're, if you're very nice... <laughs> we might. Uh, we might. But, I mean, if you've got a specific point about today's podcast or previous podcast or you've got topics you'd like us to, to cover off in future episodes, uh, then use that little microphone icon at ycurve.com. Indeed. And go there and look at all the old podcasts as well. All yes. the ones that we've recorded half already. A dozen of them. Yes, yes. yes. Exactly. Worth <laughs> a dive into. So we'll catch you again soon. Thanks anyway, for listening. That's it from us. Bye bye. The Y Curve.